0: Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, we're going to look at verses uh, 1 through 20, we're going to read verses 1 through 20. It's uh, a bit fitting, maybe, uh, that we're coming to this passage, I intended to preach it last week. But uh, everything we've looked at prior to this point have been pre-birth announcements. And this we see is the first uh, post-birth announcement. So having celebrated Jesus' birth this week, we are now going to look at this passage post-birth as well. I I will say uh, my heart goes out a little bit today to those who are watching online and who have a need to watch online I could not be here for one week and I watched the service online last week and now here this week it's just done my soul well to be back in person uh, together with people in the room. So for those who have been doing this for nine months, um, I, my, my heart just goes out to you and I have been praying for you. But follow along with me as I read to you Luke chapter one, or two verses one through 20. I may stop and, uh, and give a couple uh, points here and, and there. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, I'll stop there and just a uh, little bonus material since we only have one service today. By the way, uh, Russ gave me permission to preach for three hours, so I hope you all are comfortable. Um, This this often Luke has been accused of getting his facts wrong. Uh, The the language in the Greek, I'm not going to get. I'm not going to get into a great detail today, Uh, but this this could mean that this was the registration before. Quirinius was governor of Syria. And if you have a good translation, you should get that note in your footnotes. The reason that's important is because uh, Quirinius was governor in Syria a long time. We didn't know who Quirinius was. He was uh, discovered, uh, or actually artifacts with his name were, were discovered later. And that, that census that he ordered, or when he became, not, not that he ordered, but when he became um, governor in Syria was post- Jesus' birth. And so I think the better translation here would be, and in fact what what the Greek can mean as well behind verse two, is that this was the first registration before Quirinius was governor of Syria, Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee. Now, up here is not a reference to north. Galilee is in the north. Uh, Bethlehem, where he is headed, is southeast of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is south of Galilee. But in order to go from Galilee to Jerusalem, you have to go up, not in terms of north, but in terms of uphill. In fact, Jerusalem, uh, probably at this point, maybe even still today, is the highest Uh, City in Israel. And so up would have been a reference to elevation. And so Joseph, and taking Mary with him, went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, again, we get something a little different from Luke here than Matthew. Matthew calls Mary in in chapter 1 when when he finds out, when Joseph sees that Mary is pregnant and he knows it's not possible for him to be the father, uh, Matthew calls Mary and Joseph husband and wife. Now, what's the difference here? Well, the difference is not that one gets this right and the other gets this wrong. The difference is one, Matthew is a Jewish writer and Luke, on the other hand, is a Gentile writer. Gentiles think much like we do, where uh, you get, before married, you get engaged, and when you are engaged to somebody, they are your betrothed. It's not seen as a legal marriage yet, but there is a commitment to one another. Uh, Now, Joseph, however, and Matthew as he records uh, the the story, is Jewish, And, and Jews think a little differently Uh, they would have an actual ceremony, something like a wedding, that, that would be legally binding. But the couple after that would not go live together Uh, And they would not consummate the marriage. The bride would go home to her father's house after this unifying ceremony. The husband would go for sometimes up to a year and work and build and prepare a place for his bride. And then when that was complete, he would go get her. There would be another ceremony. The the marriage would be consummated and it would be official. So, Luke's mind, or or more official, in Luke's mind, as a Gentile author, they're betrothed, they're engaged. Not yet husband and wife. But to Matthew, they're married. The ceremony has taken place. And so they are, uh, the, the, though they have not come together together, uh, to consummate the marriage, he would have seen them as married. And so Joseph, upon finding out that Mary was pregnant, would have put her away, uh, divorced her, as we're told in Matthew. But of course, the angel comes and says, no, don't do that. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what is in her is from uh, the Lord. So anyways, it's just a little bit of a different perspective there, but because Jewish culture and law would have seen them as married, even though Luke tells us they're betrothed, they still would have had to go together to the census in Bethlehem, marry with her husband. I hope that's making sense. <laughs> uh, they're engaged, but also considered, uh, that, that, that would be considered legally binding to a Jew. And so they went together to Bethlehem because uh, Joseph was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Verse 6, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. I'm guessing that most of us in this room have probably seen either the old animated version or the new live version of Disney's Aladdin. If you haven't, you might have to go watch it in order to make sense of this. But I think if I were going to be declared a king... And I were arriving someplace, like Aladdin, I would want all kind of pomp and circumstance and instrumentation, and I would want everybody to know that the king is here, the king, he has arrived, much fanfare, and I would want them to know how great I was. That's just me being honest, though that's not good. But, you know, it's usually ordinary, I think, that somebody wants to be seen for ways that they're not. For Aladdin, he wanted to be seen as a king, though he was not. Uh, we, we oftentimes uh, put on this persona uh, of what we're like, we, we, or what we at least want people to think we're like. I remember uh, going into uh, the jail in Tucson, not after having been arrested with a chaplain, I just want to clarify that, and going through parts of the jail. Uh, in, in Pima County, which is the county where Tucson is, uh, the jail there is divided into two sections. First-time offenders and repeat offenders. And then each of those two sections is divided into, again, between first-time offenders and... and re- or, I, let, let me rephrase that, I'm sorry. The f- one side is uh, uh, misdemeanor crimes for which somebody has been arrested... And the other side is felons. And then each of those sides is split into first-time offenders and repeat offenders. So there's an area where first-time misdemeanor arrests go. And then there's an area where repeat offender felons go. And when you go into the area of the jail that is first-time misdemeanor uh, guys under arrest, there's three guards at a booth with like a hundred guys, and they won't talk to you, they want you to think they're bad, they want you to feel intimidated, they, you know, they're projecting this persona that's really probably not all that true. They want to be seen as hard, and yet they're, they're there for the first time. And then, in great contrast to that, you go to the maximum security area, where there's a guard for just a small group of people, and they only let some out at various times. Those guys, they got nothing to, no pretense to make. They will literally pulled up a chair, have a seat, have a conversation. They were friendly. They were excited to see somebody there who was willing to talk to them. They didn't have anything to prove. Well, I am not a king, and so if I were going to pretend to be a king, I would want all the pomp and circumstance that attended a king. And yet, here in this story, when the king of kings comes, the long-promised king, the king who is going to and always has ruled over every other king and authority and government, when he shows up, he doesn't show up with fanfare He doesn't show up with riches. He doesn't show up with a parade. He shows up in a stable being placed in a manger. And when the announcement of his birth comes, it's not to kings. It's not to rulers. It's not to governors. It's to shepherds. I don't think we can understand without taking a little closer look, just how important that is. Luke, uh, he has a particular emphasis on the outcast in society and culture. I think maybe part of that is that Luke is unique in all of Scripture. He is the only Gentile author in Scripture. And so all 64 other books than Luke or Acts, the two written by Luke, they're all written by Jewish authors. But there was this this pride in being a Jew that looked down on Gentiles. And so Luke, I think he's got this heart for the outcast of society. The major players in the story are Gentiles, who were outcasts, uh, the poor, who were outcasts, lepers who were outcasts, and women who were not seen as very important in that society, and shepherds. Shepherds were not, uh, they were not the elite of society. It was not a good profession to be a shepherd. In fact, shepherds were so looked down upon in this culture that they could not testify in court, because all shepherds are liars, right? And their testimony cannot be trusted. And so here, when Jesus arrives, this announcement is not made to the high and mighty. Matthew records that. He records the kings or the wise men, the magi who come. And Matthew's point is to show us this royal splendor of this sovereign God. But but Luke is showing us this lowly position of Christ. And his birth was announced to shepherds without fanfare to the most unsuspecting people. But one of the things that should amaze us is that this is a singular event in all Scripture. And I'm not talking about the birth of Jesus. We, we, it is not necessarily, uh, I mean, it only happened once, right? It's recorded in multiple places. But there is, uh, we know that Jesus only came and was born and lived once. But that is not what I mean when I say this is a singular event in Scripture. What I mean is, is what draws us, uh, what draws our attention to the importance of the birth of Christ. And that is that from cover to cover, Genesis through Revelation, you will not find another place in Scripture where a multitude of angels appear to anyone. It only happens here. This is the only place where seemingly the picture for us is the sky is ripped open and all heaven erupts in praise over what has just happened. We see Gabriel coming to Daniel in in the book of Daniel. We see angels appearing to others, but only here is there just this massive celebration. I tried to think of what can I liken this to, and the only thing I could come up with is imagine your favorite sport and your favorite team. And it's coming down. Whether it's football, maybe it's a hail mary. Whether it's basketball, maybe it's a buzzer beater. And 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 everybody is on the edge of their seats. And it's the last seconds of the game. One play, one more inbound is all you've got to win. And your your quarterback throws a hail mary for a touchdown. Or the ball is inbounded and just with a fraction of a second left, the basketball is shot, it goes through the hoop, and what happens in your house at that moment? Well, if you're at the Griffiths' house and Jamie's there, probably lots and lots of screaming and and yelling. But there's just, I mean, we've all seen those videos, right, where all of a sudden people jump up and there's this explosive yell and scream, we won. I think that's kind of a picture of what's going on here. There's this eruption of praise from heaven and the sky comes open and it's not just one angel in the glory of the Lord anymore. The glory of the Lord came with that angel. Now that's another singular event, right? Not only does this one angel show up and announce the birth, to the shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone around this one angel. But after that, there was suddenly, verse 13, with that angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, "Why? why such praise at this moment? Well, I think the key to that is found in 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12. You don't have to turn there, but here's what Peter says there. He says, concerning this salvation, The salvation that this baby came to provide. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ uh, in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. So all of the Old Testament authors, as they wrote, even they wrote going, I wonder when? When's the time going to be? When is, when is this promised one going to arrive? This Messiah, the Savior, the seed, the stump, the many names he gets in the Old Testament. When is he going to be here? But it's not just the prophets who looked into these things. Verse 12 of 1 Peter 1 says, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that, they have, in the things that have now been announced to you. Through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, here it is, things into which angels long to look. All the culmination of all the promises, as as the angels have been sitting in heaven on the edge of their seats, waiting for the buzzer beater, waiting for, for this baby to arrive. It's not like they didn't know Clearly they probably knew when the eternal Son of God took on flesh in the womb of Mary. But nonetheless, this is the moment he's arrived, he's here, it's been born, it's time, and all heaven comes flying off of their seats and erupts in praise, saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. What a scene. What a picture to these lowly shepherds. Well, I want to look at three acts of this story. This story unfolds in three acts, and we'll look at them uh, pretty quickly. Act one is the report of Christmas. It is the report of Of Christmas. First, we see that the birth of Jesus is reported to the shepherds, it's announced to them. And like all other angelic appearances, they're afraid. And like the other angelic appearances in the book of Luke, they're assured that they don't need to be afraid, but that something has happened, and they're going to be given a sign. Now, we're not told by Luke that this angel is Gabriel, but I think there's good possibility that it was. It matches the exact same formula of Mary and of uh, Elizabeth and and Zechariah. I mean, we're seeing the same things happen happen here. But, but like all other appearances of, of these angels, they're afraid and they're assured that they don't need to be. And in verse 10, the angel tells us, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. And as Pastor shared, Thad shared with us last week, this is the word, this good news in the Greek is the word we get the word evangel from, or, or more commonly we use the word evangelism. Evangelism is a sharing. The evangel and the evangel is simply the good news, but what is the good news that the angels reported here today in this day? and, and I would say there are two components to the good news. I mean obviously the good news is the ba- this baby has been born in Bethlehem you 'll find him in swaddling claws and lying in a manger, but nonetheless there's two components to the good news and first is that this baby was a savior. Look again with me uh, at verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior. Not a political leader. Think on that for a minute. Not a political leader. I think it's dangerous on both sides of the aisle How much hope Christians are putting in mere mortals today. In political leaders. No political leader, no president, no governor will ever save us from our sin. And no matter who sits in the Oval Office, Christ will always be on his throne. He's never up for election he never will be up for election. Oh, and by the way, if I could make this point briefly, no one has ever made Christ Lord. He is the Lord, whether we recognize it or not. But he is not a political leader. He's not a genie either. See the, the, the uh, Aladdin reference earlier. He's not a genie. And sometimes we treat him that way, right? Like he came to make me healthy, wealthy, and happy. He, he came, if, if I just believe in Jesus, every broken thing in my family will be fixed. Well, maybe not. If I, just, if, I just come, if I just come to Jesus, if I just believe in him, my, my husband, my wife, they'll, they'll change. And they'll be good to me and there'll be peace now. Well, maybe Jesus is calling you to be the peace in that home, not simply to receive the peace. He was poor. Why should we think he came to make us rich? Some of those things may attend our salvation. But Jesus didn't come primarily as a genie so that by faith we might rub the lamp and have him pop out and say, what do you want? And we say, Lord, I want to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. He says, I'll happily make you healthy and wealthy and happy. As long as your perspective is eternity, and not just necessarily here on earth. Ephesians 1, he has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. No, this baby was a savior. Savior from what? To save us from what? Well, we often talk about saving us from our sin, and that's completely true. We are saved from our sin, but it's not just our sin that we're saved from, it's the consequences of our sin that we are saved from. But then there's another question that remains. The consequences imposed by whom? We've all fallen short of the glory of God, we've all sinned, we've all broken his law. Who imposes the consequences of our sin? It is God, the just. And yet, here we find God, the just king, being born like a lamb, so that he might be led up a hill to the slaughter and bear the consequences of our sin. Uh, John Piper said, the wonder of the gospel is this, that the very God we needed saving from is the very God who saved us. Can you imagine that? That our sin, in violation to the holiness and justice of God, brought about his just and righteous wrath? And yet, rather than sitting in heaven figuring out and devising ways to get angry and even, he devised a plan to redeem by bearing his own consequences upon himself so that we might be relieved from them. His desire was not that he would just be, I mean, I think think sadly there are so many, even Christians today, who have this picture of God as angry judge and, and make no mistake, God will be just where his mercy is despised. Oh, but he was pleased. What he wanted to be glorified in was his saving work as he rescues us from his own consequences towards our sin. What sweeter love for us is there than that? That as James, the half-brother of Jesus, tells us, that God's mercy has triumphed over his judgment. Oh, this baby is a Savior. But secondly, this baby is the Lord. Verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. We needed a Savior, but this Savior could not just be a mere mortal. It could not be simply a sinless man. Psalm 49, 7 through 9 says, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. No, no man can ransom the life of another, but the God man can the ruler of heaven and earth, who took on flesh as he goes to the cross as our Savior, the Lord, not just a mere mortal, he is truly valuable enough to ransom the life of another. And so we see in this first act the, the report of this baby who was born, who was both Savior and Lord. Lord. Secondly, uh, the next act in the story is the reason for Christmas. We're first told that this baby has been born and that he is Christ the Lord. And secondly, we're told in verses 13 and 14, the reason for Christmas. Verse 13, and suddenly there was with, an angel, with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God. There it is. There's the first reason for Christmas, the praise of God, the angel's praised God, and we should praise God. Ephesians 1, again, not only has God given us every spiritual blessing, but we're told three times in Ephesians chapter 1 that we were saved to the praise of his glory or to the praise of his glorious grace. Why was this Savior, Christ the Lord, born? Is the end of of his salvation, or is the end of his birth our salvation? No. No the end of his birth, and our salvation is his praise. Our salvation must result in his praise. Never underestimate the high calling of praise. Never underestimate the value in joining with the angels and even all heaven as we see in Revelation when we praise God. And parents, if you're here today or if you're watching online, do not miss an opportunity to teach and show and model for your kids how we praise. Be in church and bring them with you into church. I think at, when it comes to our parenting, there is a law of diminishing returns. If you half value the church, they might quarter value the church. We're sitting, we're, we sit around half committed to the church, more committed to vacation or whatever else it is, or sports or athletics and and travel for teams than we are the church. And then we've got a generation trying to figure out, how come my kids don't value the church? It's because we taught them that other things are more important. Never underestimate the value of modeling praise for your children. The first reason for Christmas is praise, but the second reason is peace. There was a a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. For what does God desire to be praised? His harshness? His anger? His disappointment? No. He wants to be praised for his peace. And who is there peace among? If you've got the NIV, I think your translation of this particular part might be the best. Uh, There is peace among those on whom he has placed his favor. And on whom has he placed his favor? Upon those who have trusted the good news. Upon those who have believed that Jesus, the eternal God, miraculously and by the power of the Holy Spirit was born of a virgin lived a sinless life, and died in our place. This Savior is the Lord, and he came that we might not only be God-praisers, but that we might be at peace, not only with God, but also with each other. And so Act 3 is the response to Christmas. How do we respond to that? We celebrated this last week the fact that God took on flesh, became a human, was born, suffered, and died, though he lived a perfect life in our place, condemned, so that that he could redeem us. He was treated as a sinner so that we could be treated as righteous. What's the response to that? Well, I think there's a threefold response to Christmas. This is the third act. Here's the threefold response. Number one, seek the Savior. Seek the Savior. There should be, there we go. There's There's a slide for each of these. This is what they did. The angels showed up. They announced the birth of the, this Savior, Christ the Lord. They praised God and announced peace. Now verse 15, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. They went they went and found him, believing, as Hebrews eleven six 6 tells us, that God rewards those who seek him. We've, if you go to Hobby Lobby or many other places, you could probably find a Christmas decoration that says, wise men still seek him. And that's a true sentiment, isn't it? But I think I would add one to that. Wise men still seek him. The humble still find him. They went. They knew they needed a savior. They knew they needed redeemed. They knew that they couldn't redeem themselves. And so, immediately upon the announcement of Christ the Lord, they sought him out. They left their sheep. They left their livelihood. They left their job. They left their security. They left their fields. And they went and they sought out. I I don't know this because Luke doesn't tell us this, but these guys didn't even leave the field to go get registered. Maybe that's how lowly they were. They didn't even care about counting shepherds. I don't know, I'm guessing here. These guys were in the field with their flock by night, the most easy time for sheep to be picked off. And they left. They went and sought him. Wise men still seek him and the humble still find him. We must draw near to him in faith. If you have not in faith repented of your sin and trusted Christ and his righteousness as the means by which you can be accepted by God, if you have not by faith seen and trusted that God saved you from himself, by himself, for himself, oh, I hope that you would today. I hope that you would confess and believe and trust him Number one, seek the Savior. Number two, share the story. Share the story. The only logical response to seeking the Savior is sharing the story. Verse 17, And they went, and when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. When we have an encounter with the Christ, when our eyes are, are opened and we see the glory of heaven in this manger, when we see the ruler of heaven and earth, Christ the Lord, born of a virgin, on our behalf, we can't help but tell people the story, the good news of the gospel, the evangel that the, that the, the angels told the shepherds about. It wasn't meant to be hidden. It was meant to go. Previously, and for some time, Trinity, wonderfully, uh, this is, I, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed at what has been done and And I'm so grateful for it. But there was this long time of growing for his glory. We're going to grow the building. We're going to grow the budget. And we're going to do it for God's glory so that we have space to share the gospel with people. And that's wonderful. Well, well done. Great work. But the church isn't the field of dreams. God's message is not if you build it, they will come. No, the only logical follow up to growing for his glory is going with the gospel. Because God has not called the world to come into the church to hear the gospel. God has called the church to go into the world and proclaim the gospel that those who hear it might believe and become part of the church. That's God's design. Growing for his glory is wonderful, and the next step in it is going with the gospel. Going with the gospel is how a church grows for the glory of God. And so we seek the Savior, we share the story, and thirdly, we worship the king. That's not just the, the shepherd's response, by the way. That's everybody's response. Look with me at verse 18. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. If you tell, go out there and you tell somebody the gospel and they go, huh. This happened to me one time. I was called into the hospital to visit with a guy who was dying. He said, I think I'm going to go to heaven. What do you think? I said, I don't know. Are you really asking me? He said, yeah, I really want to know what you think. I said, I think we're all sinners. I think we deserve God's just condemnation. But because he is a merciful God and loves us, he sent his son, born of a virgin, to live the sinless life we couldn't live, And then die on the cross in our place, risen again three days later victoriously, so that simply by trusting him and no merit or work or effort of our own, not by being good enough or doing enough, we can be saved because of what he has done on our behalf. And this man looked at me in the bed and he said, hmm, that just doesn't seem right. I can't control his response. And in my flesh, that doesn't seem right. I want to contribute to my salvation. I want to be good enough. I want to deserve it. I want to have a part in in why I'm saved or why I'm a believer. But sometimes we're going to share the gospel and people are going to wonder, huh, I wonder about that. But sometimes we'll share the gospel and verse 19, we might get a response like Mary, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Sometimes we'll share the gospel and people may wonder, who knows what's going to happen later. That that might be a seed planted that comes to fruition later. But sometimes we're going to share the gospel with people and they're going to treasure it. They're going to leave their fields and seek the Savior. They're going to sell everything they have to buy the field with the pearl of great price. They're going to do whatever it takes. They're going to abandon their lives to, 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 to live for Christ. They're going to treasure him above all things in their heart. And so sometimes, some people, they'll wonder. Some people will treasure. Look at the shepherds. This is our response. If we've already believed, this is our response. I love this. Uh, Verse 19, or verse 20, I'm sorry. And the shepherds returned. What happened when it was all over? What happens when Christmas is over and New Year's is over? We all return to work, to life as normal. We go back to things the way they were. It's not a bad thing. The shepherds returned to their work, to their vocation, to their lowly position, but they didn't return the same. Look at the rest of the verse. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. They became praisers. They became God glorifiers. Not because all of their circumstances were suddenly different. They went right back to their circumstances. But they praised God and glorified God as a shepherd. What do you do? What's your job? What's your vocation? If somebody asks you, you know, tell me about yourself, usually the first thing we do is tell people what our job is. I think it was Tony Evans uh, one time was was preaching, and he said, "Whatever it is your vocation is, as a Christian, your job is to show the world what Jesus would have been like doing that." That's scary as a pastor to say. <laughs> How do I live up to that? You know what? I can't, and I don't have to, because I'm not the King of Kings. I'm not the Good Shepherd. He is. But whatever we do, we return. That's our response to Christmas. We return to God, but but as worshipers of the King. They returned as those who now glorified God and praised Him right inside their ordinary lives. What makes your life extraordinary? What makes your life extraordinary? Do you think an extraordinary life would be one with much money, with the, the right job, With significance, lots of vacation time, retiring early. These these, these lowly shepherds lived ordinary lives. But they lived their ordinary lives extraordinarily for the glory of God. May our lives be extraordinary, not because of our circumstances, but because of our Savior who was born. Christ the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for the extraordinary announcement of the birth of our Savior, Christ the Lord. Lord, may we seek Him, may we tell others of Him, and may we worship and glorify Him, and in so doing, live extraordinary lives, not of temporal value, but of eternal value, for your glory and for our good. Father, thank you for redeeming us at the price of this child when we could not redeem ourselves or one another because the price of our life was too costly. You sent your own son born of a virgin to live in our place and die in our place and to be resurrected offering us life. Oh, Lord, you deserve all glory and honor and praise. Thank you for what you have done at Trinity in growing for your glory. And we want to see your kingdom grow for your glory. But make us, make us extraordinary, not, not in, in who we are or what we do, but that we live extraordinary lives for the glory of Christ as we go out into the world with the gospel to call the lowly and the humble to you. Lord, we know that wise men still seek him and the humble still find him. May we be humble and seek you. And may we have the privilege of being present after sharing the gospel when you call other humble people to yourself as well. Do much through us for your glory and for our good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.